Good morning. One of the um, words that you saw again and again or heard again and again in that passage is the word faith. Faith. What is faith? That's where I want to start this morning. You know, the language of faith, the language of belief is uh, it's really common in our culture today. Just one example um, from the movie Dumbo, the acclaimed motion picture Dumbo. Um, I think Dumbo says something like everything is possible if you just believe. Everything is possible if you just believe. That's by basically the Disneyfication of faith. Everything is possible if you just believe. Now, that's kind of sentimental. It's a little bit hokey. I'm sure there's some catchy Disney song that goes along with it somewhere on Spotify. But that's a lot of people, what they think of when they think of faith is, I can do anything if I just believe. Another example from the world of sports. Nobody believes in us. Nobody believes in us except for the guys in this locker room. That's a classic motivational ploy that sports teams use. The Astros probably didn't use that, by the way, when they were cheating. Those dirty cheaters. They are cheaters. They didn't believe in themselves even. Um, Side note, that's another sermon for a different day. That's another way we think about faith is I just need to believe in myself to achieve what I need to achieve. Some of us might think of faith, and for sure in our culture, faith is often thought of as kind of another form of therapy. Um, the book and the film, The Life of Pi, is a great example of that. It's about this guy that gets trapped on a boat in the ocean. I'm not going to go into all the details. And one of the main themes of that book is that he survives. He makes it just by his faith. Faith is how we deal with the pains of life that we can't handle ourselves. Now, all of those are faith-filled sayings, right? They tell us that in our culture, faith matters. Faith is important. Everyone, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, or they don't even know what they are spiritually, believe and agree with that. Many of you today might see a thread that ties those statements together with what Christianity says about faith. So what is faith when the Bible uses that idea and that language of belief and faith? When we talk about those things together as people seeking to follow Jesus, what does it mean? It's clearly uh, an essential thing for people who want to know God and for people who want to experience salvation to possess. According to the Bible, uh, faith is a big deal. So what is it? That's our topic today. What is saving faith? Is that me? That would be amazing if it was. I've never been able to do that before. Okay, so faith uh, is what we're talking about today. Last week, Paul began to use the language of faith at the end of Romans 3. And he did this in laying out his chief concern in these chapters. And here's Paul's chief concern, that everyone, whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles, are justified. They're declared to be right with God by faith, by faith and not by works. He talked about that at the end of chapter three. He says that the righteousness of God, our right standing before God is given to us as a gift and it's received by faith. That's why it can be for the Jew or for Gentile, for everyone who believes. So justification, which I said last week is God's way of righteousing the righteous. It's God's way of righteousing the right, the unrighteous, excuse me, um, is what God does while also maintaining his integrity. And it's something that we can access by faith. That's what Paul introduced to us at the end of chapter three. Now, Romans 4 is an elaboration on that idea. It's elaboration on this central truth of justification. Now, this chapter provides us with clarity on the meaning, clarity on the meaning of justification by faith. And Paul does this by using as an example that great pillar of ancient Hebrew faith, Abraham, Father Abraham. And so as we look at chapter 4, we're going to split this into two sermons 
And uh, both sermons and both, as we study chapter 4, will clarify justification, hopefully, for us and and the nature of faith. And so this week, we're going to look at the idea of saving faith. Next week, we're going to look at the idea of living faith. So in verses 1 through 15, Paul's answering two big questions. Two big questions. Why was Abraham saved? That's the first one. Why was Abraham saved? And we could say, why are any of us saved who are saved? And the second question is, when? When was Abraham saved? We're not going to get to the second question today because I was writing this and I got finished and it was only at the end of point one. So that's a one point sermon today. Why was Abraham saved? And and I think if we can answer these questions, we go a long way towards understanding what saving faith is. And here's why that matters. Listen, here's why that matters for you. Saving faith is your gateway for experiencing gospel freedom. Saving faith is your gateway for experiencing the joy that comes from understanding and resting in the gospel. And I really want you to experience that today. And much more importantly, God really wants you. He really wants you to experience that today. So let's look at these verses together. Why was Abraham saved? Paul uses the example there in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Abraham. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, the religious opponents of Paul, the Pharisees, the first century Jews of his day, would have said that Abraham had been justified. They would have said, Paul, you're right. Abraham was declared righteous before God. But they would have disagreed with the means by which that happened. They would have disagreed with why. Why Abraham was saved. If you had asked a first century Jewish person in Paul's day, why was Abraham righteous before God? They would have taken you to Genesis chapter 22, a story from Abraham's life, a very famous, probably the most famous story about Abraham. It's when God told him to sacrifice his own son, the promised son, Isaac, on top of Mount Moriah. And Abraham, in obedience to God, treks up that mountain with Isaac and he ties Isaac down. And then right before he sacrifices him, God stops him, right? And in verse 16 of Genesis 22, God says this to Abraham, listen, because you have done this, Abraham, And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So a Jewish person in Paul's day would have said, Abraham was right with God. He was a friend with God because he obeyed God. Because he was willing to obey God even to the point of sacrificing Isaac, which made no sense to him. Now Paul is countering, he's disagreeing with that argument here. Look at what he says in verse 2. If Abraham was justified by obedience or by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then he quotes another part of the Bible, earlier than Genesis 22. He quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. What does the scripture say, Paul writes? Abraham believed God. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's point is this. Abraham was credited with righteousness way before he obeyed God's command to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham was given that right standing before God for another reason than obedience. And it's exactly the reason that Paul laid out for us in Romans 3. It's because Abraham had faith. He was declared righteous before God, not because he obeyed, but because he believed. He believed God's promise. So Paul says, Abraham's not an example of justification by works. He's an example of justification by faith. Exactly the point I'm trying to say to you now, Romans. 
And then in verses 4 to 5, we, we see this incredible explanation of what justification by faith is, of what faith is. Look at what Paul says. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's saying here that saving faith has two parts. It has two parts to it. Why was Abraham saved? Because of faith, not works. Well, what does that mean? Two things. First, what does Paul say? Abraham had stopped working. To the one who does not work. What? Yeah. To the one who does not work. Faith is counted as righteousness. Now, that can't mean, it cannot mean that Abraham, his entire life, never gave a rip about obeying God, didn't care about God's law. Obedience and holiness meant nothing to him. That's not what this means. At the end of chapter 3, Paul says, I uphold the law through this teaching of justification. What it means, rather, is that Abraham had ceased working to earn his own standing before God. He had ceased working to earn his own righteousness. So... Faith is Abraham's stopping working. He stopped working to earn his own way, to achieve his own standing, to get his own righteousness, and then he did something else. Look at what it says next. It's the one who stops working, but trusts. But trusts. Trusts who? Trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. So faith, Paul's saying here, is very important to understand this. Faith is a receptor Saving faith is just a channel. It's the way by which we receive the righteousness of someone else. Listen, if you're in here and you're a Christian, you are not a Christian. And you are not saved because of your faith. You're not. You're saved because of Jesus. You're saved because of Jesus. Faith is just how you receive as a gift everything that Jesus did for you and all that Jesus is for you. That's why Paul says that God justifies ungodly people. He can justify ungodly people because justification comes through faith. Faith is, it's receiving and resting alone on Jesus for salvation. Paul's saying Abraham did the same thing as I'm telling you to do. Abraham believed in God's promise and then God credited that faith to Abraham as righteousness. He credited that faith of Abraham as righteousness. Now, that doesn't mean when God looked at Abraham's faith and credited it as righteousness, that doesn't mean that faith is righteousness. Faith is not like a separate work that's like the equivalent of righteousness. No, faith is distinct from righteousness. Faith doesn't merit anything. Listen, faith is a trust transfer. Faith is a trust transfer. It's a transferring of your trust from yourself in all the myriad of ways that we trust in ourselves to Jesus. Faith is simply trusting, resting, receiving the fullness of God's love for you in Jesus. Faith is receiving the gift of the righteousness of Jesus. That gets you to to the very heart of what faith is. Maybe this will help you. Last week I alluded to... um, what's called the second diagnostic question in evangelism explosion, which is a a evangelistic tool that uh, was started in the 80s that actually is really effective in a lot of ways that helps people understand what it means to believe in Jesus. The second diagnostic question goes like this. If God were to say to you, 
as you stand at the doorway to heaven, you die and you, St. Peter's there at the gate, right? And you're standing at the doorway to heaven and, and God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? Now, there's all kinds of possible responses to that question, right? One response is, you should let me in because I've tried my very best to be a good Christian. I've tried my very best to be a good Christian. Now, hopefully, if you've been around Christchurch long, you know that is not the right answer. Do you know that? That's not a good answer. Um, Because I've tried my hardest to do God's will, um, that's salvation by works, right? It's bringing some form of your own achievement, of your own righteousness to the bargaining table with God. So we don't like that answer if we've been around gospel teaching for long. But another answer that people might give to that question, why should I let you into heaven? Is this, because I I believed the best I could. You could even say, I believed in Jesus the best I could. I believed with all my heart, God. That might initially sound really good to some of you, actually, but that's really problematic. It's really problematic. Here's why. That answer sees faith as basically another work. It's salvation by faith as a work. It's it's no different from the first answer. How is it no different from the first answer? Because it demonstrates that you really haven't stopped working. As 4 or 5 says, you haven't really transferred your trust from yourself to God. Your work is just now trying to have this strong faith in Jesus. Um, You haven't done a real transfer. What you've done is, it's kind of weird, you've trusted in your own trust. You've believed in your own ability to believe. You have faith in your own ability to have faith, which is to say, really, that you think you're right with God and you'll get access to God based on your work of faith. Let me tell you something, practically, very practically, do you, do you know what that leads to if that's kind of the world you're in, if that's what you think faith is, is I've got to have a strong faith in Jesus. I've got to hold on to Jesus fast because that's how I'm saved. Here's what that leads to. It leads to a radical lack of assurance. It leads to a radical lack of assurance. Depending on your church background, this might resonate with you. I I know a lot of you have a similar church background to me, um, but in my church experience growing up, there was a huge emphasis placed on um, making a decision. A huge emphasis placed on making a decision to believe in Jesus and uh, to trust Jesus. And so I did that. Nine, ten years old, eight years old, I walked down the aisle and I made a decision. And there's a lot of things about that that are actually good. Um, I said, I believe. I've made a decision to follow Jesus. I am a Christian now because I have faith. And you know what would happen? I would then go out into the world and I would realize that my faith is not very strong. (laughs) And you know how I would realize that? I would do things and I would say things and I would feel things that didn't match at all what I was reading I should be like in the Bible. And so I would think, man, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I don't have strong enough faith. Maybe I haven't gotten it yet. And so do you know what I would do next? I'd walk down the aisle again. I'd make another decision. I'd recommit my life to the Lord, which again, can be a good thing. But in this context, it's really problematic. I'd say, I'm going to strengthen my faith. Let me go down the aisle again and talk to the pastor, which just happened to be my dad, which was kind of weird and awkward, but I did it anyway, right? And I still didn't have assurance. I was still plagued by guilt and doubts. And guess what else? I still didn't experience substantial growth as a Christian. 
And the reason was that functionally, I was trusting my experience of trusting. I was believing in my ability to believe. I was no different than Dumbo or whoever Disney person said that, right? Basically thinking that being a Christian, I just have to believe, just have to believe, just have to believe. And I just was a wreck. I was ravaged on the inside. So what changes that? That's what Paul's saying here. What changed that for me? What changes that for you? Listen, meeting Jesus is what changes that. Meeting Jesus in his grace changed it for me. When I came to understand that faith, faith is receiving Jesus' work. It's not trusting in my work, even if my work is a work of faith. For you to have faith means you trust Jesus. You are falling headfirst into Jesus. Listen, by definition, saving faith, by definition, saving faith is weak. Saving faith is weak. How, how is it weak? Saving faith is weak because saving faith is saying, I am so weak. I'm so frail, so sick, so dead that I have to let another hold on to me. I have to let someone else do all the work, like literally all the work. I have to trust that Jesus is going to carry me. What gets you to Jesus is not your strong faith. It's weak faith. Really, weak faith is strong faith, which is why Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Uh, I was watching this on YouTube this week in the, in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Summer Olympics, um, in the men's 400 semifinals, uh, there's a, a man named Derek Redmond who was racing for Great Britain. And uh, they all lined up to race and, and the gun went off and they began, I mean, like lightning bolts, right? Going around the track in the 400. And about a third of the way through the race, you could see Derek Redmond kind of in one of the middle lanes pull up. He had just completely yanked his hamstring out. I mean, just done. Pulled his hamstring and he just collapses in a heap onto the track with clay and dirt all over him. And the race is like finished by this point. And then the camera pans back to Redmond who had gotten up and was just literally limping along as slowly as you can imagine, trying to complete the race. And the announcers are like, he's trying to finish the race. Oh my goodness. This is the Olympic spirit. And the best part is this. He just can't do it. I mean, he falls down and then out of the corner of the camera, you see his dad just come sprinting onto the track. And his dad's got this like, it's not make America great again. Sorry, but it looked like that kind of shirt on and the hat on. And he's like, go America. And he just picks up his son and starts walking with him. And at first his son kind of shoes him off. Like, no, dad, I got this dad. And his dad, he can't do it. The guy can't walk. And so his son, his dad's just carrying him around the track and his son just breaks down, just weeping. You know, you spend your entire life for this one race and your hamstring gives. The best part is when some Olympic official with no sense of the moment, <laughs> he'd come rushing onto the track and he's like, sir, you can't be out here. And the guy gave him this look like, if you touch me, it will be the last thing that you do. And so they finished the race together. But the, the only way this guy could finish the race, Derek Redmond, was because his dad came out there and carried him. Listen, that's what saving faith is. Saving faith is just letting God carry you. It's receiving the gift 
of the righteousness of Jesus, you do not cling to Jesus nearly as much as Jesus clings to you. You do not cling to Jesus strongly enough, firmly enough, or faithfully enough ever. None of you, and neither do I, which is why faith means believing that yes, no matter what, if I trust, <laughs> if I trust, that in fact, trusting is that Jesus is clinging to me. Do you trust that? Like, really, have you experienced faith in that way, that Jesus will cling to you? I, I want to discuss a couple of just the incredible implications of this, okay? So stick with me for a few minutes. What does this definition of saving faith mean? Scripture tells us God justifies the ungodly, and that's received by trust, by faith. And that gets us, I think, to just the central beauty of what it means to be a Christian, the central beauty of the gospel. And I'm honestly, I can't believe I get to say this to you. I'm I'm shocked. I am shocked that this is true. I was stunned again this week that this is true. Here's the central truth of the gospel. Every single one of you is a sinner, And I'm a sinner. And every single one of us continues to sin. But when God looks at you, he counts none of those sins against you. God sees you right now as if you had never committed any sin ever. Period. That's why Paul quotes David in verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord doesn't count sin. You are a sinner. You keep on sinning. I'm a sinner and I keep on sinning. But when God looks at you and thinks about you coming and standing before him, he considers you as if you were exactly in every way like Jesus. Perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, perfectly just. That's what started the Reformation, by the way, 500 years ago, which is why Martin Luther says, classic Luther, he says this, it's a marvelous thing to teach Christians to ignore the law. (laughs) To teach Christians to ignore the law and live before God as there were no law whatever. What does Luther mean? He means that the law does not and cannot condemn you. When you look at the law and you think, my gosh, I can't even come close to keeping commandment 1A, much less all 10, much less everything, not even close. It does not condemn you. You live before God as if there was no law. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism, question 60, says this. You know what? You're reading this one with me. Put it up there, please, if we can get it. Heidelberg Catechism 6. Are we out? Able to do it? I'll read it. Let's go. Okay, here we go. Um, Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, right? Of having never kept any of them, of still being inclined toward all evil, Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with the believing heart. Justification means God does not count sin. He does not count your sin. He credits to you righteousness. Even though you're unrighteous, he gives us the free gift of Jesus' perfection. He imputes to us, that's the theological word, he imputes to us the full obedience of Christ. I want to close out with some implications of this. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to let justification by faith sort of sink into your heart? What does it mean for you to marinate on that spiritually? What will change your experience like Abraham experienced change? What will, um, what will appropriate this doctrine from your head into your life? What does it look like? The first thing this means, that God does not count your sin against you, that he does that for you for free, and that all you have to do is trust that Christ died for you and was raised from the dead. The first thing that means is that you have access to a profound freedom. Gospel freedom. A deep spiritual freedom. You're free. You you don't have to be weighed down by the guilt of your sin anymore because the guilt of your sin has been taken away. It's completely paid for. So you're free from the burden of the guilt of sin. But guess what? You're also free from the crushing burden of actually trying to fulfill the law on your own. You're you're free from having to be in control all the time. You're free from trying to dictate your own life. You're free from addiction to, to duty, from addiction to outward performance. You're free from addiction to your own rights being met. Jesus Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness. Jesus Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness. Have you experienced freedom like that? I think about the end of Shawshank Redemption when he finally gets out of prison and the rain is pouring down and he just looks up into heaven with arms in the air. That's what it feels like. Not all the time, but that's what it feels like initially when you understand the gospel. Gospel freedom. The second implication is honesty. You can be honest if you know that God doesn't count your sins against you, especially when it comes to repentance. Honest repentance. Luther, again, said that the Christian life is one of ongoing, continual repentance. How how does justification by faith, how does understanding this bring that into your heart? Well, listen, think with me. Apart, apart from appropriating the righteousness of Jesus by faith, uh, you can't really look at your sin honestly. Can you? It's just too threatening. It's too threatening to you. It's too threatening to people around you. In fact, we all have a stake in not seeing our sin rightly. (laughs) We benefit by not being honest. It's in our best interest to hide things from others, from God, which we can't really do, but we think we can, and even from ourselves. But when the righteousness of Jesus is credited freely to your account, it frees you to be completely honest about your struggles with sin and then not to be crushed by them because Jesus was crushed for them. That's already happened. He was crushed for them in your place. Repentance can even be kind of fun. I know that's crazy, but it can't. It's, it's, it's the way we engage by faith in the truth of the gospel. You can be honest because, as Jack Miller says, you're worse than you think you are, but you're more loved than you ever dared imagine. You can be honest because you're free. You're free from the curse of sin. You're free from the guilt of sin. You're free from the penalty of sin. You can repent because God already sees you functionally in the heavenly courtroom as a non-sinner. And there's nothing that you can ever do or will ever do that would possibly change that. And so if that's true, you can be honest. You can repent. Jesus is seated in the heavenly places. Jesus has torn the curtain of the temple. Jesus has died. Your status is secure. So just rejoice in the gospel by owning your sin and repenting of it. What a joy it is. What a joy to be able to repent and then rest in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What should you repent of today?
What should you repent of? Let's have some fun and repent. Pride, lying, greed, lust. Say to God, say to your community group, say to your spouse, this is what I've done. This is who I am. And I'm going to rest in the righteousness of Jesus, which covers all my sin. And in God who counts me as perfectly righteous. When that starts happening in your life, you become a happier Christian. I was listening to a podcast from uh, Scotty Smith, a PCA pastor this week, and he was talking about um, a revival that was happening some years ago in Northern Africa. And uh, he was able to be a part of that, and he preached in one of their services. And this revival's worship service, it's a regular church gathering, it'd go for about three hours. Three hours, yep. And um, amazing worship music, good sermon. And then for the last hour and a half, people would just stand up and publicly repent. They would stand up and publicly repent of their sin. And when someone stood up and repented, there was this riotous celebrating and clapping and rejoicing. That's what justification does. Gospel freedom. In his freedom, I am free. We sang that just a minute ago. Honest repentance. Last thing, when you get the gospel, it actually brings joyful obedience. Justification by faith is actually the key to unlocking real obedience. It's the way that your actual lifestyle changes. It's the way actual new habits are formed. And it happens because all of it flows out of your security, out of your secure, assured standing in Jesus before God. Because of that, you're free to obey, and you can obey joyfully. If you don't get justification by faith, you very well might obey, but you obey out of duty. You obey out of fear. You obey because you don't want to get caught. When you get the gospel, you obey because guess what? You actually love God. You're actually glad for what God has done for you. And you want to. You want to obey. Your affections change. And so can I just ask you as we close up, have any of those experiences been a part of your Christian experience? Have you ever experienced the freedom of the gospel that God does not reckon you as a sinner period. Have you ever experienced the joy of honest repentance? Have you ever experienced the beauty of Christian obedience, not in order to make God happy, but because God is infinitely and permanently happy with you already, and you want to please your loving dad? If you haven't experienced that, I want to invite you in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of his spirit into saving faith. I want you to trust If you've experienced it before, but it's been a while, come back. God does not count your sin against you. Amen. That's good. Let me close with Lloyd-Jones. Here's his quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, uh, The Christian is one who glories in the cross. Who glories in the cross because the cross has done it all for us. He doesn't merely say that he admires the cross. He doesn't merely accept its message intellectually. He rejoices in it. The word that Paul actually uses in Galatians 6, what he's talking about, is a very strong one. He says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a matter of boasting. It means that to the Christian, there is nothing which comes anywhere near the cross in importance. It means that he rests everything upon this, that this means all to him, that he is what he is because of this. Does the cross mean that to you? Does the cross mean that to you? Because that is the power of the cross. It's available for you today, right now. Just rest in Jesus.
Let's pray.